Let's pray for Rich before he brings today's message. Lord, we thank you for Rich. Thank you for our vicar, our leader, Lord, and for all the ways in which he serves you, for how he's given out his last two weeks in New Wine, for what you've um, put on his heart and his mind for this morning. And we ask that you would, um, your spirit would speak through him today and you give us soft hearts and open minds to hear what you say. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Hello. I've really missed you. I really have. I got so excited. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I got so excited when I was driving down the tithing. I was thinking, yay, I'm home. Um, for those of you who've got no idea, because you haven't even noticed I wasn't here, um, or you've just randomly passed through or you're visiting, um, and Kath and I and quite a large number of the church actually were down at New Wine, which is a big summer gathering of a network of churches that we're part of for a week and uh, Kath and I stayed on for another week along with some of the guys from church because we are, uh, helped lead the thing and Kath and I were overseeing one of the three worship venues again called Hungry and it's been an absolute joy and privilege to do that. I am completely exhausted. I've basically spent the last two weeks in a big marquee with about 1,200 other people for the vast proportion of every day. I've sung more songs than I care to think about. I've listened to more sermons than I care to think about. The very best sermon, I have to say, that we heard in the both weeks in the evenings was by Laura Gallagher, who got a standing ovation last week. She was amazing. Uh, it was so lovely to go. Everyone was like, where's she from? I'm like, all saints, what's that? Um, but uh, for those of you who don't really know what New Wine is, it's, it's the largest Christian gathering festival in the country. Uh, we had 12,000 delegates each week. Uh, and to make that happen on site each week, there's about 3,500 team. Uh, so it's a massive little community. I was on the radio for the, the BBC last week, and they were saying, so tell us how many people are there. And I said, well, somewhere between 14, sorry, 15 and 16,000. And they just, what? Uh, yes. And um, it's a real joy. So New Wine's been gathering like that for 30 years. And this was the last year at the site down in Somerset. It moves next summer to Peterborough. We'd love you to come with us if you've never been um, and it's an extraordinary time where we gather the church to give it a time to, to be refreshed and renewed in, uh, in the things of the Spirit, to be taught uh, the Scriptures, to hear encouragement, uh, to hang out together, to get a sense of the vision of what God's doing in the nation. Justin Welby was there with us for a couple of days, our illustrious leader, which was great. And um, lots of things happened. I could tell you loads of stories. But let me give you some highlights. Is this working? Yeah, good. It sounded like it changed. Um, I was told last night that 678 people came to faith over the last two weeks, of which, of which 632 were under the age of 18. It's amazing. So if you've got children or grandchildren, it's the kind of thing where they should come along. Our kids always grow in their faith when they're there. Um, a couple of stories on that front. One of the sound engineers in the Hungry venue had grown up in the church, but had kind of left it in his teenage years. And he got moved into our venue from another one, and he was a bit reluctant because in his mind it was like, oh, yeah, I'd rather be down in the youth venue. But he absolutely loved it. And uh, one of the things we do in our venue is an early morning Bible teaching stream called Rise. About 1,000 people turn up at 7 in the morning to be taught the Bible. I mean, that's what it's like. And uh, the end of one of the talks, the guy doing the talk said, look, I, I just sense there's people here, and you grew up in the church, but actually you've drifted away, and you've seen something happening around you this week, and 
you just feel like you want to plug back in. If you're here, just why don't you come to the front? And this one guy, Tim, who's Tiny Tim, we called him, gets up from behind the sound desk and walks down the middle aisle and just kneels at the front and gives his life back to Jesus. It was beautiful. It was amazing. Uh, we had this lady called Deanna come up to me at the very end of one of the evenings. It's like 10 o'clock. I was trying to pack down. Our kids are running feral around the venue. And she, you could tell she wanted to talk. And she came up, and she was a bit timid, and I said, hey, how are you? And she said, well, I've basically, I've been kicking around my church for a few months. I don't quite know why, just no church background. And then they all said they were going to this thing called New Wine, so I thought I'd come along. And basically, I'm I'm just watching on, and I, I want what you've got, but it doesn't make sense in my head, and try as I might, I can't feel God, and I've asked him to fill me with his spirit, but nothing's happened, and basically, I've got one more day, and then I go home, and so I don't know what to do. So I said, well, what would you prefer? Would you prefer the light bulb to go on in your head and it all to click? Or would, you, would it help you? Are you a kind of someone who needs to feel God? And she said, oh, definitely someone who needs to feel God. And I said, well, okay, here's what I think you should do. You should say, God, I, I want to meet you. And I, I know she'd been doing that. But the fact she'd come to talk to me meant that she really wanted it. And I knew the last thing she needed was me to offer to pray for her there and then. That would feel claustrophobic. So we had this lovely conversation and then off she went out of the venue uh, and I was like, Lord, just meet with her tonight as I went off to do the next thing. Anyway, the next morning, she's there, front of the queue to get into the hungry venue, uh, and uh, beaming. And I, I said to her, what has happened? And uh, she said, well, the minute my foot hit the ramp on the way out of your venue, I felt this peace descend upon me. And I just felt so relaxed and warm and loved. And I, felt, I was carried along back to my campsite. And then before I even got to my tent, I started to laugh uncontrollably as this inner joy burst out of me. And she went and she sat down with her friends from her church. She said, what has happened to you? And she said, I think I've met God. <laughs> and, and as she sat down laughing, they all start joining in. This joy is infectious. And she said, I've got to tell you, I met with God. Amazing story. One more. Can I give you one more? Do you like these? Are these encouraging? Um, This is why we do it, so that the local church goes back to where it's meant to do the stuff of the kingdom, freshly encouraged by what we've seen God do. So so we have this kind of food court area. It's a massive site. Right in the middle, there's all these food vans where you can go and buy food if you can't be bothered to cook. Anyway, this lady came in at the back of our venue uh, last night, and uh, she, she was totally intrigued, and I, I, I happened to be there. I said, oh, hi, come on in, assuming she was just late. She said, no, no, I'm, I'm running the, um, the pulled pork van, which was amazing. And uh, she said, I'm only covering for my sister, who's actually had to go look after one of her children. I've never been here before, but I heard the singing, and I just felt, I had felt drawn in. And so I said, well, come in and have a look. And so she came in and she watched, and honestly, I just watched her start to weep. She just cried and cried and cried. She could not leave the venue. So, so in the end, she's like, I'm going to have to get someone to go and sell the stuff. So, so she's texting her son, going, you're going to have to do what you're doing. And uh, we led her to fight to faith last night. She's only there for a day to sell Paul Port for her sister. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's what God does. And we need to remember that here in Worcester. The same God that does that there can do it here. All that happens is we go with greater expectation to something like that. And we're more open to it. And we're in this environment where it gets intensified. And, but it's the same God doing the same thing. One, well, two more stories. And then I'll tell you about the greatest showman. 
and why it's an, a story about Jesus. Okay, uh, hang on tight. Uh, we had um, a guy in our venue who was born with hearing impairment. Uh, he was 15. It's called Dan. And uh, he, our venue was quite loud, but he, he couldn't really hear it properly. He could just about hear it through his hearing aids. And uh, anyway, we were inviting people to be prayed for he- healing, and he decided he was sick and tired of not being able to hear properly and believed that God could heal his hearing. And uh, so he came for prayer. And uh, it's happened many times before this, but he, he suddenly realized that he didn't need his hearing aids anymore because suddenly the room was super loud, so loud that he had to run out because it was like so intense because he'd never had that level of sound in his ears before. So he came back in the next night, um, having been to the doctor on site and they'd done a medical verification of this and we got him up to tell the story and uh, we that night were on the radio, uh, the New Wine Radio broadcast around the site and over the internet and so there's people listening all over the world and uh, he said he shared his story and someone in their tent on holiday in Tuscany who has hearing loss as she heard this story, said, God, heal me now. And she wrote in saying, I think God's healed my hearing in a tent in Tuscany as I listened to this boy, Dan, tell the story of what God did the night before in this tent in Shepton Mallet. Isn't that amazing? Hello? Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so be encouraged. The God we worship has not given up on his church. He's not given up on his people. And it's a real privilege to be part of it. I want to say thank you for releasing Kath and I to do this, for releasing members of the team. You can be proud of them, especially um, those that were on team. They were amazing. So we're in this little series, um, which I think Andy kicked off last week. I hear it was great, where we're trying to help you see that some of the films that we love and have helped shape our culture actually are stories that can help us understand something more of the heart of God. There's a famous book now, a famous book written many years ago called The Seven Basic Plots. Some of you will have heard of this, which basically says that there are only seven stories. And every song, every poem, every piece of fiction, every film, every play, every musical is one or a number of those stories somehow intertwined. There are only seven basic plots. Uh, and that they all, in a sense, echo the ultimate true story of God and his people, the story that we have in this book. And so actually the theory is, and it's been road tested and proven to be true, is that you can, uh, you can look at any piece of fiction, any song, any film, and actually you can see echoes of the, the true story of God in it. And that they all point ultimately to God and what he's doing with and through his people. And one of the things you can always do is look at a film and look for the Jesus figure, the person who represents something of the grace of God. And so periodically we do this just to help you see that the world around us can be read and understood. And part of the call of the missionary church, you and I, is to help people understand what it is that their cultural stories are really trying to get to. Why is it that the greatest showman which is an incredible film, has been so popular. I would suggest it's because actually what it does is it gets us here and it invites us into something beyond ourselves. It resonates with our heart. It it draws us into something that we know is missing from our lives, that the world around us is craving for. It's scratching at some truth 
that actually we would argue is ultimately only found in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But it's a window into the questions our culture's asking. It's an insight into the things that people are feeling and thinking, fearing and hoping. And actually properly understood can actually become something where we can actually help make sense of people's lives. Are you with me so far? So, important question. Who has not seen The Greatest Showman? Oh dear. I'm in the wrong room. Why not? Uh, Who has seen The Greatest Showman? Who's seen it more than once? Yes. I've seen it about 58 times because our children love it. Okay, so your homework is to go and watch The Greatest Showman. I would argue it's one of the best films of the last two years. Musically, it's brilliant. Story is brilliant. But actually, hopefully by the end, you'll see that actually it tells us something about God, about us, about what the church is meant to be, and ultimately how we might go about changing the world, uh, which is what we're about, right? Local churches changing nations. So we're going to show in a moment the trailer, which given that most of you have not actually seen it, um, might be really helpful. I was, going to, I was hoping it was going to be a recap for all of you, but honestly, where have you been? Right, okay. Uh, the story is loosely, and I, very loosely, based on a true, a true person called Phineas Taylor Barnum, who in 1871 created what would become the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Catchy. Interestingly, it actually only closed last year. Uh, just before the film came out, it went into administration. I wonder whether it would still be in existence had they waited a bit longer. Anyway, here's the trailer. A couple of minutes, it'll give you a feel for the film. attention. You're all dismissed. Bankrupt. Better luck with your next job. I am not a stranger to the dark. This is not the life I promised you. Not even close. Because we don't want your broken parts. Girls, I think I've had an idea. T. Barnum, at your service. I'm putting together a show. And I need a star. Every one of us is special. And nobody is like anyone else. That's the point of my show. Bertie? Showtime. by being like everyone else. I can't just run off and join the circus. Why not? 
So I mean, you clearly have a flair for show business. For show business? Mm-hmm. I've never heard of it. Because I just invented it. Who wants to watch it now? <laughs> a few more of you. Right, my job is to convert you um, by the sounds of it. Okay, so this film, I would argue, has been a hit for all sorts of reasons. Yes, the music, incredible. Yes, the story, brilliant. Hugh Jackman, legend. Costumes, etc., phenomenal. But it's also resonated because the themes in the film are actually scarily relevant to our day. Racial discrimination, an issue today? Yeah, more than ever, actually. Gender inequality, issue today? Yeah. Class warfare, issue today? Let's do this together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, I'm really tired. It'll help. Uh, prejudice, based on physical ability, looks, and, in, and differences. Issue today? Yeah. The choice between family harmony relationships and the pursuit of personal wealth and success at all cost? Yeah, massive issue. The undying pursuit of the Western dream at all costs? Yeah, check. Nothing's really changed. The Greatest Showman is set in the 1800s. Now, some of it is you know, far-fetched, and you think there's no way that would have been true culturally in those days, but they're trying to provoke our culture by design. It's a deliberate attempt by Hugh Jackman to challenge us about what's fundamentally wrong with so-called sophisticated 21st century life. It is absolutely brilliant. You really must watch it if you're serious about connecting with our culture, which I hope you are. And so um, you've got in this story one section of society that really doesn't like the other. There's fear of the other. And so what he does is he creates this show, and we'll come to this in a moment, where the people, the misfits, the oddities, the, the people that are in the shadows because they've been stigmatized and judged and shamed, he, he brings them out into the light and he affirms them and he gives them a space and he dignifies them. But there's a community around him that's fearful of that. They resist his circus because what he, they don't like what he's doing. They don't like what he's saying about the kind of people he's putting on his stage. And so what you have is this uh, moment in the film where they're kind of, there's a big clash. And there's these people saying, we don't want these people in our town. They don't belong here. A couple of weeks ago, just literally over the road, the English Defence League marched through Worcester. Not many of them. There were more counter-protesters, thank God. But that's the 21st century we live in. Why? They don't want a big mosque to be built on the other side of the city. Fear of the other. Racial intolerance, religious intolerance. Now you might be sat there thinking, well, that's not me. Great. But actually, that is our culture. The other theme in this film is the seductive power of wealth and status and privilege and how it can easily become an idol. The Greatest Showman isn't just a film about circus performers. I would argue it's a reflection of a contemporary society that's divided by pain and injustice and pulled apart at the seams by those in power, by a culture riddled with consumerism. And what this guy Barnum does is he, he challenges that by creating something so countercultural 
that the people on the outside become part of the inside and the people on the inside find themselves on the outside where actually his social standing and their social standing collapse into one and it serves to function as this kind of provocative, I would argue prophetic challenge to the day of his culture and that's what we're called to be as the church in our culture today. You need to go and watch the film. The start of the film, we see Phineas Barnum. He's a young boy in New York. He's the son of a very poor tailor working for the rich families of that part of New York, and particularly the Hallett family. He falls in love with the daughter, Charity, and many years later, despite her father's wishes, Charity marries Phineas, and they have two girls, and essentially she's ostracized from her family for quite some time. He's working in the shipping company. You saw that on the uh, trailer. Uh, and when the, the shipping company goes bankrupt, he goes home, and there's a little scene which you got a glimpse of where they're on their ro- the roof of this kind of run-down apartment block where they live with their two girls, and he's managed to just give them a little birthday present and the light thing that spun, and he has this idea that he's going to create the circus. And she thinks he's mad, and he sinks all their money into it, and for a long time, it doesn't, su- it doesn't really succeed. What he does is he goes and finds the people that are hiding in the shadows, the weird, odd, don't fit, don't look right people, the people with gifts and talents that no one else has seen because of the way they look. They've judged people on their outward appearances and so written them off. And he does that because if you've seen the film, earlier in the film, when he's actually on the streets, his father's died, and he's homeless on the streets, there's this odd-looking, strange woman who comes out of the shadows and gives him an apple because he's hungry, and he remembers that moment. He remembers that the person who met him in his place of need wasn't someone who could have done it easily, but was someone who gave something that she probably wanted for the sake of someone else that she identified with, and then she literally disappears back into the shadows. And so what he does is he says, I want to create a space in which the people that don't feel like they fit, the marginalized, the excluded, the people who've been written off by society can come in and be part of something. And initially, what began as kind of like a, a means of earning some money for his family, exploiting them, he quickly realizes isn't what's really going on. And then what emerges out of him is this humanitarian heart. He becomes the father to this little community. He bestows upon them dignity and identity. And he invites them into this little thing that they, they end up calling their family. And they trust him. And together, they put on this incredible show which wins people over wins people's hearts and wins people's minds. It becomes this huge success, despite the critics in the newspaper. And there's this particular character who's constantly criticizing him until the very end, which we'll come back to if I remember. And so you get this kind of show made up of all these freaks and oddities, as the language of the film says. And it's this powerful vision, I think, this argument I'm making really, is that it paints a picture of what we're called to do. to create a space, to create a family, to create a community in which everyone can find a place where we don't judge on outward appearance. We don't write people off because of what they do or don't look like or what they can or can't do, but we actually create a space in which they can step into their divine image-bearing status as a child of God, be redignified, have their humanity given back to them. 
And it takes someone like him, who by this point is kind of has married into the upper elite, the social elite. He's got money. It takes him to do it. He's the benefactor. He takes what he's got. He uses what he can do to create a space for them because they couldn't do it for themselves. And so he's the benefactor. And they're the beneficiaries, certainly for most of the film. We'll come to that in a moment. You and I are the benefactors of grace, the kingdom of God. We're called to take what we have, which is the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness and hope, a story where we can tell about how we've been invited from the outside right into the heart of God and go and pay that forward. Go and extend that grace into the world. That's what we're doing when we seek to be the church. And so for me, a sign that we're making a dent in the issues of our culture in Worcester would be that this church not only has more people in it, but it's full of all kinds of different people. We've got some work to do, folks. Naturally, what happens, the sociologists tell us, is that, I'm totally off my notes, just to warn you, this could be a long morning. Uh, it won't. It's fine, it's fine. Uh, is, is that we attract and we like to hang out with people like us. PLUs. People like us. Look around. We're all very white. We're all quite sophisticated in our own ways. Especially Dave over there looking very dapper in his suit. Sunday, Sunday best. Always makes an effort. Who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? Are they just all PLUs? Or have you got to know the person who's a bit different to you? It's a question I'm asking myself. And what Barnum does is uh, he creates something so brilliant that it breaks down the judgment and the cynicism and the fear of the community around him, the people, and he wins over the crowds. What's really interesting is the people who flock to his show are those who are not really the misfits and the oddities, but they're also not those with money and power. They're the in-betweens. And that's the majority of our culture, right? And they flock because they realize that this is also for them. Because the truth is, guys, we're all outcasts. Ultimately, we're all beautifully unique, made in the image of God, each one handmade by the Father. And yet we live in a culture where there's so many differentiations, so much segregation, so many assumptions and judgments and perceptions that we can all feel if we're in the wrong room at the wrong time like an outcast. Yeah? And so it's actually something we have to own for ourselves. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, what happens, if you know the story, is that Barnum soon gets a bit bored. His ambition soon grows. He forgets these values that shaped this little project that he put into, uh, created and brought into being of, of loyalty and of respect and of honor and of devotion and of, of actually being with the least, the lost and the lonely, of actually identifying with them, remembering his story, that he too grew up in the shadows, that he too was rescued from it, that what he was doing was giving to them what that lady had given to him. He forgets it because wealth and power was seductive. He finds himself suddenly accepted by charity's parents because he's made enough money and he's bought enough property and he suddenly can wear the right clothes and his kids can go to the right school and he finds himself 
um, in the upper echelons. Actually, if you know the story, he finds himself going to visit the Queen in England and bringing some of his show with him. And there he meets um, this famous uh, opera singer who actually was a real opera singer called Jenny Lind. This was one of the true bits of the story. Uh, and they end up having this kind of like idea that he gets her over to America and they tour America together and they both become extremely wealthy. They end up having essentially an affair, mainly an affair of the heart. Um, and he loses sight of who he was doing it for, his family, literal family, but also this family of the misfits that he'd nurtured and led and cared for. And before too long, it's all gone. It's totally all gone. You see, if we pursue power and wealth for the wrong reasons, in the wrong ways, we're actually left with not more, but less. And ironically, it's this whole disaster that takes uh, or makes it possible for Barnum to realize the true purpose of his show, not as a revenue for money and fame, but as a celebration of humanity, as this beautiful statement of what God really wants the world to be like. And so I'm arguing that it's actually an opportunity for us to read this film and see what we're meant to be because of who we are and what's been true for us, and what it means for the church and the people of God. So, who wants to see it now? Oh, flippin' heck. Your hard work this morning, I tell you. If I put a screening on, will you come? Yeah, maybe that'll help. Okay. So I want to suggest to you that, there's a few things just to tease out, really. I want to suggest to you that identity and community and purpose are actually all intertwined. That's what this film, I think, tells us. Who we are, who we are with, and what we're doing, they're all intertwined. And when one of those gets distorted, when one of those goes awry, the other two come tumbling down. We are made for community. Relationship with God, relationship with one another, and relationship with the world around us. We are who we are, but we work it out, we live it out in community, and that community has a purpose, and it's to usher in the things of the kingdom. It's not to be a community of PLUs. It's to be a community that represents the heart of the Father, which is that everybody who feels like an outcast would feel included, that everybody who feels like they are less than would actually have their dignity restored, their identity bestowed upon them afresh by Jesus Christ, who came and died for them that they might have life in all its fullness. We are all called to restore in others the, bear, the, the image-bearing status. When we look at people as some sort of problem, as when we look at people as different from us and therefore a threat, when we look at someone who, need, who, can, who can't do anything for us and we just see them as a drain, as a cost, as a project, then we're not seeing them the way God sees them. We're not seeing them the way Jesus sees them. We're not seeing them the way we need to see them if we're to be Jesus to them. You see, Jesus doesn't look at your color or your facial disfiguring. He doesn't look at your background, your story, your bank account. He looks at you and he sees in you himself. Because we're made in the image of God. Male and female, he created us in his image. And what Barnum does is he, he, he sees and he comes to see it more and more fully as he spends more and more time with this community of weird people, relatively. Something beautiful. Because he sees in them the image of God. Now, he doesn't say that in the film, but that's what's going on. If you remember the seven basic plots, it's an echo of the true story. 
So, the film, I think, gives us an insight into four things that are powerful for us, and I'm just going to race through these real quick. The first is the power of dreams. What's your dream for the church in Worcester? And I don't mean just this church. We're part of, uh, thankfully, a, a really healthy group of churches that all love being together. The leaders get on really well. We meet regularly to pray and worship and eat together. We hang out. We champion each other. See, dreamers win hearts, right? People with dreams win hearts. Barnum had a dream, and he won hearts. And eventually, he won their minds, and then he lost his. He gets it back. We'll come to that at the end. It has a good ending. From the beginning of the story, we see this boy who dreams of more, who actually intuitively as a kid, growing up in absolute poverty, knew he was made for more. Because when you're a kid, you don't understand social status. You don't understand the difference a postcode makes. You don't understand the difference an inheritance or not makes to your financial, you have no idea. So this little kid, he just connects with this little girl and they become friends and eventually they marry, but he doesn't see any difference. His dad works for her dad, but so what? If you've been around kids and ask them what they want to do when they grow up, they have these dreams. Zach, our boy, he's nine, um, he currently wants to be an engineer at Jaguar Land Rover, professional goalkeeper for England, a missionary to North Korea, and something else, <laughs> uh, all at the same time. He's dreaming, because we're made to. We're made to create. We're made to work with God, to fill the earth with his glory. Humans are culture makers. We're dreams. We're dreamers. And what happens is that this man chooses to follow his dreams, and we resonate with that because something in us longs to be part of something more than just the bog-standard ordinary. And the church is called to dream with and for God for a world that we don't see but in reality, but we see with the eyes of faith, that we see a picture of it painted in the scriptures, a promise of it guaranteed in the scriptures. And we're called to live in such a way that we dream for our city, that we dream for our families, that we dream for our neighborhood. What's the dream in you? What kind of people do you want around your table? What kind of influence do you want? What eulogy do you want at your funeral? Who do you want to be there? Lots of PLUs? I want the lady who came from the pulled pork van to be at my funeral. I want her to say, he led me to Jesus Christ. She's not like me at all. She spends 32 weeks a year on a, a site selling stuff with her sister. In a totally different background. But God made her just as perfectly as he made me. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, I thought I'd better give you some scriptures so you feel like you've had a proper sermon. Uh, some of you don't care, but some of you do. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 20, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, dream, According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. God wants a church that dreams. Not so that we can have a swanky building and people like us can all come along and hide from the terrible bad world out there. 
but a church that says, we've got something better and more beautiful than anything the world can offer. Paul says, I count it all as lost for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. He had everything. What's your dream for you, for your life, for this city, for the church? So that's the first thing, the power of dreams. Secondly, the power of inclusion. What, what he does, and I've already covered this really, but he, he includes the excluded. The gospel is radically inclusive. Now, I, I think Jesus demands from us quite a lot once we come into his family. He expects things to change. He wants to make us truly, newly human. Some of who we are and what we are has to be transformed by his grace and power. But, but no one is excluded at any point from joining the family. But the problem is... The locked door of this building six and a half days a week excludes people. The time we meet, the way we meet, the things we do excludes some people. The perceptions people have of us excludes people. There's loads of exclusion. We've got to work really, really hard to include these, those who feel excluded. And the only way that they are ever going to be drawn into the life of faith through the church is when you and I go into the shadows, when we go to the margins. And by the way, there are shadows and margins in the nice swanky suburbs of Worcester as well as there are in the toughest parts. I chatted to someone recently at the school gate in Northwick where our kids go, which is a huge privilege for them. This is where the vicarage is. And she said, I'm so lonely. I live in this amazing house. I'm so lonely. Don't assume that they don't live around the corner from you. And what... Barnum does with his circus is he, there's a bearded lady, there's a midget who plays the general, there's this really fat man who he makes even fatter with pillows. There's this African-American acrobat who would never have been allowed to perform in those days. She's on stage and she's incredible and she falls in love with the son of a wealthy um, landowner, etc. and breaks down all these barriers. Is, is He says to them, and you heard it on there, he says, everyone's lovable. Everyone's special in their own way. Everyone's unique. Everyone's important. The only community on the planet that can offer unconditional welcome and inclusion is the church. Because our theology demands it. Jesus did it. That's where we get our theology from. So C.S. Lewis famously said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone's equal when it comes to Jesus Christ. There is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no free or slave. We're all in it together. But unless you and I get out of our little bubbles, unless you get and I get out of our little communities of PLUs, unless we take the risk of going and finding the people that Jesus sends us to and including them, they will never know that. Barnum took the risk of going to find them. Now, as I said earlier, initially it was a commercial enterprise, but something shifts in him. Who do you need to go and find? Who do you need to bring into your life? I was chatting to somebody at New Wine, and they said they're a family like ours, and they said we, there's five of them, but they always set the table for six. And their kids know, and they know that they can always invite someone for dinner. Just bog-standard evening meal. Do you set the table for one extra? 
We need to get much better at this. Okay. Third is the power of community. Uh, what happens, as I say, is that Barnum brings all these random people together, and initially they all sus- they're all quite suspicious of each other, and of him, actually. But before too long, they become this little community, this family, this tribe, and no matter what they're going through, they're in it together. And it, what the film, I think, tells us is that true belonging in community actually requires a commitment to authenticity. See, the good thing about it for them was they couldn't hide who they really were. Actually, what they had to do was trust that they were okay with each other the way they really were. What we do is we put on the little masks, don't we? We pretend. We fake it to make it. Especially Christians. We're so good at the shiny, happy Christian face. They don't do that. And so if you know the film, you know, there's this, these moments when they start to really love one another. They start to really trust one another. And actually, they start to realize that Barnum has, has kind of forgotten about them, and he's more interested in this Jenny Lind and the project and the money, and he's lost sight of who they are, and they're really pained by that. And they have to make a choice. But because they've come together as a community, what they actually do is they stand up for who they really are. They end up actually carrying on without him. But community, as we'll see, is the thing that saves him. It's that community that saves him from himself. Friends, we can go and find people in the shadows, in the margins, bring them in, but if actually what we bring them into isn't real and authentic, we don't help them at all. We're just pretending. I won't say any more about that because we've covered that a lot. The fourth and final thing I want to suggest to you uh, is that we see in this film the power of love. Who wants to see it now? The right answer is, yes, I do. I want to see it again. and I want to go and see it for the first time. What we see in this film is the power of love. The need for redemption always shows up in the best stories, right? The, the character, the hero character, often has a moment where they have to face their frailty. They have to die to themselves so they can be raised to new life. Jesus is the archetype. Barnum is, an archi- is, a, is, an, is a reflection of the archetype. He is the Messiah for these guys. He is the one that goes into the desolate places. He's the one that creates this countercultural community that, that has a different rhythm to it, has a different set of ideas shaping it. But he loses sight of who he is. And there's this moment when he has to face up to his failings. He has to face up to the fact he's lost everything. And it's the redemptive power of love that saves him. He has to die to himself. So this egotistical journey to make everyone love him meant that at the end of the day, the people who really loved him, he left behind. And the people he thought he wanted their love from, they weren't really interested. So he chases fame, he loses his dream. And if you know the songs, one of the songs captures this brilliantly. Jenny Lynn says this in one of the songs, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough for me. And he realizes, what have I done? I've sacrificed relationships, true community, loving family for the pursuit of wealth and status and power to impress the people that he thought he needed, that he didn't need, who weren't impressed anyway. They were just using him themselves. 
Love misdirected has powerful consequences. The moment when these tragedies lead him to realize his foolishness is a really powerful point in the film, actually. And there's another song that uh, he sings called From Now On, which goes like this. For years and years, I chased their cheers. The crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who all this was for. Friends, what are we chasing? Who are we trying to impress? Which relationships are we taking for granted and ignoring because we think we need something from someone else? How's your relationship with God? Which is actually all you need. We don't have to impress anybody. All you need is what God gives you. But what Barnum realizes, and we're coming to the end, is that love sowed is actually love reaped. Love is redemptive. For me, the best moment in the film is towards the end when the tables turn. And what we find is that they realize that Barnum's world has fallen apart. And this family that he's created, this bunch of oddities in the circus, they go looking for him. And they find him in the bar. And what they do is they bring him out of his shadow, the margin that he's found himself in, and they bring him into their community. They welcome him into their world. And they restore to him the dignity of being part of their family. They restore to him his dignity as a member of the human race. They call him back into who he is. They bestow upon him his true identity. So powerful. They fight for him just like he fought for them. That's what we're called to do. That's what God does for us. That's what we're called to do for each other and for the world around us. They love him back into their community. And in the end, Barnum chooses his family over his show. He finds redemption and belonging with his family, his wife, his children, and this little community that he's created. If you know the story, the circus, the building actually burns down. But what they've been doing is saving their money that he's been paying them. And so they go and build another one. And then he hands it over to his prodigy. And at the end of the movie, his transformation is complete. And he sits there, his wife next to him. And he looks at his children. And he says to her, this is the greatest show. Because at the end of the day, we're not here to do a project. We're here to love people. And to love the people God's put around us. Not some other people over there that we want to impress, who we think will give us something. It's a real challenge to us. And a real challenge to us to model something different to the world. Because that's what the rest of the world's doing. If we don't make any difference by being different, then woe to us. And of course, and finally, and we're going to take communion in a simple way today to end. All of this points to the greatest showman. Jesus Christ. He steps in to human history, goes to the shadows, goes to the margins. Mark 8, Luke 17, good examples of the people. He goes and finds the lepers. He goes and finds the ostracized, and he invites them into his community band of 12, band of 72. 
the misfits, the odd ones, the ones rejected by society, men and women, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, the bleeding woman, children, the Samaritan lady at the well. He forms this community of people not at all like him and makes them like him. And the father says, this is my son. Listen to him. It's the son who dies on the cross instead of us. So we can say, this is me. This is me. This is the real me. And we may not be a bearded lady or a midget or a fat man, but we're still in need of grace, right? And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus is having a meal with a bunch of misfits that never got to sit around the table with a rabbi, never mind the Messiah, never mind the Savior of the world. And it's an open table. And they're all equal. And what Jesus does, and you guys know this, is he takes the bread. He breaks it. He says, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Create an open table at the heart of your life. Include the excluded. Invite people in from the margins. Give them back their true identity as image bearers of God. Stand up for them, stand with them. Showcase them for their glory. And challenge the status quo of our society. The end of the meal, scriptures tell us he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it to remember me. It's a call to pour ourselves out. To stand with the broken, the marginalized, which is everybody ultimately. Don't be fooled by status, postcode, bank account, outward appearance. We all need including in the radical community of faith that is the church. And so we have bread and we have wine and they're assigned to us. They're a means of grace to us in this moment, in this place we call home. To us, what Jesus did for us, the greatest showman so that we can go from here and give bread and give out mercy, break ourselves open and pour ourselves out, that people, all people, would discover whose they are and who they are. Amen. Let's stand together. If you're helping distribute, that would be great. You could come to the front. There's not loads of us, but go to your nearest station. So one of the stewards will help you find where that is. There's gluten-free and non-alcoholic at the front.
Steve, when you're ready.